Amen. Thank you, worship team. Well, go ahead and have a seat. Good morning. Welcome. Hey, if last Sunday was your first time with us in your back, a special welcome to you. Uh, you picked a great Sunday to be a part of the kicking off a new series, which I'll get to in a minute. But my name's Pastor Jared. I'm part of the teaching team at Alpine Church, and it is great to be with you. I'm excited to, to launch this new series, The Jesus Way. We're going to be looking at the most famous sermon ever given by Jesus. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have your Bible, you can open up to Matthew chapter 5. And what we're going to be looking at in the next six weeks, here's a snapshot of the next six weeks, we're going to be looking at the six antitheses of Jesus. And I know that word to some, you might know what that means, but for many, you don't know what that means. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Six times, Jesus says something like this. He says, you have heard, so he's pointing back to the past, you have heard, and usually it's connected to the law, don't murder, but I tell you this. Jesus says this, be reconciled. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. And then in week two, you have heard, don't commit adultery. And then Jesus says, and we're kind of summarizing his, you know, his verses here on the right side, be radically pure. You have heard a man can divorce. Jesus says, be selfless in marriage. The losses don't break vows. Jesus says, be a truth teller. You have heard an eye for an eye, but Jesus says, be a blessing. You have heard hate your enemies, but Jesus says, be like him, be like Jesus. Pray for those who persecute against you. So that's a snapshot of what the next six weeks are going to look like. And a lot of people, when they get to this part of the Sermon on the Mount, if you're not real knowledgeable about a lot of what Jesus is talking about here, you might think that he's changing things. You might be saying to yourself, okay, well then, that means maybe the, the law was wrong, and Jesus has come to change it, to make it right. But that is not true. So before we get into the first antithesis, we're going to look at what Jesus says because he answers that question before we get to the first time where he says, you have heard. And we see this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. It says, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So he's not changing anything about the law, the Old Testament law, uh, the, the words of what Moses was written, on, especially on the Ten Commandments. And some of these are part of the Ten Commandments, but not all. The law is much greater than just the Ten Commandments. But really what Jesus is going to get at here in the Sermon of the Mount, because he says some shocking things. He's going to talk more about what the heart of the law is. And he's going to talk about the original intent of the law. And he has a lot to say about that. So understanding that Jesus, the law points forward to the way of Jesus. In the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus is communicating, this is how Christians should live. This is how Christians should act. This is how Christians should be. That's why this series is called The Way of Jesus. We are looking and listening to Jesus and the instructions that he is giving us. And if you read the entire Sermon on the Mount, he covers about every topic there is. From marriage, from divorce, uh, money, prayer. I mean, he teaches on everything. And I love 
In chapter 7, as it's ending, I love how it says, and the people who heard Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, it says they were amazed. They were amazed because he was like any other teacher they had ever heard because he taught with such authority. And we're going to be looking at the title of today's message, Anger Management, Jesus' Way. Week one, Anger Management. So I kind of want you just to look back. I had a lot of time to reflect back on all my 52 years and look at this word anger and how I related to it. And let me tell you, I am not standing up here communicating to you that I am perfect with anger. I'm exactly the opposite. There were so many stories that I have that when my emotion of anger got out of control and really tripped me up in life, one was... We had a washing machine that I was very frustrated with. You know, all the computerization, it wouldn't work, so I had to go get a new one. And then when it came time to move, I realized, well, I never dropped this off anywhere, so I had to move it to storage. And my two youngest sons were with me, and it got stuck on my trailer floor. You know, washing machines are heavy. And I was already frustrated at this washer that I'm even having to move a broken washer to storage of all places. But I did, because I just had to get it out of the house we were in. And it got stuck, and eventually I just let my anger get out of control, and I just slammed it. I was ready to bust it up into pieces if I could. And I slammed it in my trailer because it was stuck, the foot was stuck, and I was kicking it and just trying to get it out and into that storage unit. In the process of slamming it on the lid, the, the top part came off. And when I went to go pick up the part, the top, you know those lids are spring-loaded, and I picked this thing up, and that lid shot into my face and broke my two front teeth. So now I'm angry because I gotta go to the dentist. A year later, I was fishing an HDMI cable under my desk at home, and I hit the drawer and it hit my tooth and knocked out that part that they fixed. So now it's the second time I'm angry again, because I have to go back to the dentist. And I look back, and I know this is a silly story, and my sons, my two youngest sons were there, and they let me have it every time. They go, you remember that time Dad got beat up by the washing machine? And they laugh, and they laugh. But a simple thing about letting your anger get out of control, there's consequences to that. And then I look at some of the relationships I've been a part of, and I've been angry in those. And for you, I just want you to be thinking about some of, if there's a relationship or you have stories like mine where you remember and you just allowed your anger to get out of control, because there's never been once, I've never been angry, felt that emotion of anger. I've never felt it in a way that I said at the end of it, oh man, that was good for me. Oh man, was I honoring to God in that moment. There has never been one time in my life. So I I just want to be clear because there is this thing called righteous anger, and Jesus models this in Scripture. But you have to understand, he was God in the flesh, and he has all authority, Jesus does. So when he was getting angry, he was bringing judgment upon those who were turning his father's house into a marketplace. And there is this thing called righteous anger, but for us... 99.9% of the time, we are angry. We're in a sinful state. And I have many examples of that. And Jesus is really going to hit us in the jaw here today with this antithesis. And so let's look at it. Here it is. 
Matthew 5, 21 and verse 22, it says this. It says, you have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. I mean, just, let's just unpack this for just a second. The first thing that I want us to know is murder is bad. And yes, people have been murdered. And I'm not minimizing those. But it's such a small percentage of people that actually have committed murder in our world. If you look at the entire population, past, present, and looking forward in the future, it's less than 1%. Again, murder's bad, and there's grieving, and there's loss, and it's terrible. But commandment number six out of the list of the Ten Commandments says, I shall not kill. Most people stand before God and said, yeah, I'm good with this one, God. I haven't murdered anybody. And for years, the Pharisees, that's how they took that stance. But see, that affected such a small amount of people. And this is where Jesus now, he has flipped the script. He's using that sixth commandment, and now he is involving everyone. If you look back before Jesus said these words, many people are like, yeah, they kind of just skipped over that one. I'm good with that. I haven't murdered anyone. But Jesus is now is bringing everyone Everyone, every life has experienced anger. And it says, if you are even angry with someone, you know, Jesus doesn't go into details. If they've wronged you or they offended you, he doesn't say anything about it. He just says, if you are angry, just like you are subject to judgment with murder, he says, you are subject to judgment just because you're angry that we are all guilty of this judgment. There's not one human life that lived on the face of this earth during Jesus' days all the way till now and looking forward in the future. We are going to stand guilty on our anger and we are subject to judgment. I mean, just think about that for a second. And so we're going to look at three points today. Here's the first one. Murder is just the tip of the iceberg for anger, but there's more that lurks beneath the surface. And so we have an image to kind of help us understand this. If, if murder is at the, the very tip of the iceberg, and then you have the surface, and then you got this anger that's just lurking, that's ready to manifest itself in your life, in your relationships. And I think we can all kind of relate to this. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to give us Two examples of what this anger looks like. And we'll jump right into it. It says, first, going back to the passage right after it says you have brought judgment upon yourself. It says, if you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. This is so interesting to me that Jesus has this opportunity. And he chooses name calling to be the first example of this anger. And I think back, when do we start learning how to call people names? I mean, we're little. I can remember the playground at recess at elementary school. Girls stunk. I mean, you, you, you see, boys would say all these things, and girls would say all these things, and there is just this name-calling that goes on. Now, unfortunately, a lot of that leads to bullying. That's not good. But it's name-calling. And the word that Jesus uses here is if you call someone an idiot, 
you are in danger of being brought before the court. So it's important to understand what Jesus is really getting at here because when you're name-calling, when you are slandering somebody, because slandering is an offense to the courts, you can be brought to court because of slander, degrading people. But what he's getting at here is that your heart, when you are calling people names, you are starting to have the wrong heart here. And anger starts to build up. When you offend somebody, that person now is going to start feeling angry against you. And a lot of times this is mutual. That when you start feeling angry and you offend somebody, you call somebody a name, they're going to be angry at you because you're the offender by calling the name. And I just want us to, to, to keep track of that, of who is the offender in all this. Because Jesus in the next point is really going to get to that point. But I remember when I learned this lesson, I was very young. I was like nine years old, and I started to learn the game of golf. And my dad had these wiffle ball golf balls, and I kind of made this golf course in my backyard, and one of my best friends was over. He was not athletic at all. And he was messing around, and he would swing the club and make a big old divot in the grass. I was like, oh, man, my dad's going to be in trouble. You know, I'm going to get in trouble because I'm not supposed to be turning my dad's grass backyard into a golf course with holes and everything. And I started calling him names. And eventually he just dropped the club and left and, and went home. So I let about five minutes pass and I went up to his house. I'm like nine years old. He's like seven. I was two years older than him. I knock on the door and his mom answers. And she goes, you really hurt Sean's feelings. He's upstairs in his room. You should go apologize to him. And I walked up there. And I saw my friend just bawling. He had the puffy red eyes and tears running down his face. And I just remember in that moment, I remember the words that I was calling him. How impactful that was, how much destruction that caused that relationship at that point. I just didn't even know what to say. I can't even remember what I said, but I remember being confused. I've never had this interaction with one of my friends before. Now, he committed suicide when he was 24 years old, and he was my best friend to that point, and we had such a great relationship. That was the only time I ever saw him cry, ever. And he was in gangs. He lived in Hawthorne, California. He was part of the Hawthorne Pyru gangsters, and he had to do awful things. I was there when he stepped out of that gang, and his gang came looking for him to beat him up because he didn't get jumped out. And I can remember hiding in Dana Point, California with him for two days. He was tough. I never saw him cry except for that day when I called him a name. And it just reminded me of the impact our words have on the people that we are in relationship with. And how that anger, I know he had to be angry at me in that moment. And I don't know about you, but thinking through the people that you have called names. You know, you think about your workplace. You think about here at church. You know, on the show, Everyone Loves Raymond, about every third episode, Deborah says, idiot, to her husband Raymond. And my, pop, my wife and I, as we're watching it, we laugh. Because I'm Raymond in the show, and she's Deborah. She calls me idiot a lot. And it's funny that this is the word that Jesus chooses right here. 
But then we go on and we see Jesus isn't done here. He gives us two examples of what this anger looks like. And he says, and if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Now Jesus kind of transitions. So he goes, if you call somebody, if, you're, if you verbally and vocally say something about somebody, you can be brought to the court if you call somebody an idiot. But now he goes into the deepest part of our souls, our hearts, and our minds. And he goes, if you think, if you're silently cursing people, like when you're on the freeway and you have kids in the car, Sometimes you have to silently curse the drivers that are causing you pain and agony and anger in that moment. We laugh at that, but there's, there's this truth. See, the courts can't convict you of something you didn't say or a thought you had because it's private. And what Jesus is getting at here is God knows our thoughts. God knows our hearts. And so we might think, that we're really not offending anybody. But when we curse people, again, we're not being brought before the courts. It says we find ourselves, you can be in danger of the fires of hell. This eternal separation from God. Like this is a serious offense that Jesus is communicating. And it's very easy for us to find us in this state where whether we're out shopping, whether we are at work and we say things under our, you know, to ourselves about the coworkers we're working with, even here at church, there's no one perfect person in this room, including myself, and I know that I've frustrated people because of my leadership here at the Leighton campus before. I'm not perfect, but it can happen anywhere where we say something into with our thoughts, that resides in our heart is what Jesus is getting at here. And that is a bad place to be. And so these are just two examples. These are the two examples Jesus takes advantage of to share with his hearers that first heard this message, the Sermon on the Mount in the hills of Galilee. And it's interesting to me because I thought assault would be on there, striking someone and there's all these different examples, and I think it would be a good idea, you know, for families, especially if you have kids, to talk about what are some other examples of anger that can be on this list. And so this leads us to no- point number two. It says, the key to victory over anger is to see yourself as the offender, not the offended. So if you've noticed in this passage and all the way through it, he never takes in the perspective. Jesus doesn't even go there. He never takes in the perspective of the victim who's been hurt, who's got a heart of anger towards someone that has done something to them. Jesus doesn't even want to introduce that. Because usually, and we all fall guilty of this, when we have somebody who has offended us, we have this heart of anger towards them, and we want them to pay the price for what they caused. I have many examples of this in my life. We want them to pay the cost of what they have done, and so we are here in this state of anger. Anger is filling our hearts because we have been offended by something they said to us or did to us. But see, the command God gives us is to love one another. 
And when we have hatred in our heart, we cannot fulfill that commandment of God's love. We cannot share in that, that the love of God to others because we have hatred in our heart. We have anger in our heart. And what Jesus is getting at here is we are all the offenders. Never once does he use the word victim in this because this is so important. He wants us to really step into this role of understanding you're the offender and there's a part that you play as being the offender. Because what we like to do is get into our little box when we've been hurt and we get angered. And it can happen in marriage, it can happen with kids, it can happen with friendships, that we, we withdraw and now we have a heart of anger and now we're missing out on that command of love. Because we can't say we love God and have a heart of hatred toward people. That would make us a hypocrite. And so we are the offender in this story. And let's take a look at how Jesus says it. He says, so if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple, and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, you did something to them, and so they have something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar, go and be reconciled to that person then come and offer your sacrifice to God. So Jesus is getting at here, and kind of the main point of this is Jesus is really emphasizing how important relationships are. So he's teaching this to people that live up in the hills of Galilee. That's where he gave the Sermon on the Mount. And it would be a two-day walk to the city of Jerusalem where they would go to the temple and give a, a sacrifice to God, an offering to God. And here's what Jesus is saying. It's a two-day two walk. If you get to the temple in Jerusalem, and this would happen three times a year, and not, they wouldn't go to all three, but it was like Passover. It was the Day of Atonement. It was Pentecost. Those three big festivals where people would go and do a sacrifice to God. And he says, if you get there and somebody has something against you, leave your sacrifice there and go and be reconciled to that person. Just Go. You're at the temple, it took you two days to get there, and now Jesus is communicating, wait, and if I have an issue with somebody that I need to leave, because it's far greater to bring healing and reconciliation to that relationship than any ceremonial sacrifice. This would have made the Pharisees and the leading priests crazy. They would never leave. They would never leave the temple of this ceremonial ritual because that was top priority. But again, Jesus is flipping the script again. More important than coming together and giving a sacrifice to God, I need you to go be reconciled to that person. You cannot be in relationship with me if you have a heart of anger, a heart of hatred that needs to be reconciled with somebody else. And that goes for the same for us. That if you are walking into church here and you got an issue with somebody here, Hey, worshiping's great, but before you can get really worshipful and really surrender your heart and just everything to God, if there is somebody in this room that you have to reconcile, Jesus is saying, go reconcile with that person. Fix that first. Focus on that reconciliation. Then come back to me. Once you're healthy, once you don't have that heart of anger towards that individual any longer, then come to me and worship me and give a sacrifice to God. Again, he's flipping that script. We are the offender in the story. So you notice he started off 
that commandment number six, talking about murder. He never talks anything about murder. And through all these verses, he is talking about anger. And so he's telling us to go reconcile. Now he's going to end, these last couple verses, he's going to end, and we're not going to really be encouraged with his ending. But there's one more on Matthew 5.25. It says, when you're on the way to court with your adversary, settle your difference quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge. You will hand you over to an officer, and you will be thrown in prison. So when we don't reconcile, this is what Jesus is saying. This is likely what's going to happen. Now, again, the audience that he's talking to, this is thousands, it's a couple thousand, over a couple thousand years ago. But it's interesting, the same applies to us. It might look a little different, the consequences. But it's worth reconciling because if you don't, if you hang on to that heart of anger and you called somebody an idiot, that is a... A court, you can go to court over that, and your accuser may hand you over to the judge who will hand you over to an officer, and you will be thrown into prison. That's the way it was. And there's penalties to this. Here's our last point. The way of Jesus goes beyond anger to reconciliation. Otherwise, you'll be the one paying the price. And we see this in the last verse in chapter 526. This is how he ends it. And if that happens, failure to reconcile, if you don't do it, you surely won't be free again until you have paid the last penny. Jesus is saying, don't allow anything to get in the way of reconciliation. You are going to offend people. You are the offender When you have anger in your heart, he wants you to deal with it. And the way that we deal with it is we go to the person that we offended. And a lot of times it's mutual. You'll know it. You have anger, they have anger. But we need to view ourselves as the offender because that is the initiative. We don't play the victim and just hold on to that anger and wait for that person to come to us. That's why Jesus doesn't even bring it into the scenario. He's sending a message here that we are all guilty of this, that we are all offenders of this, that we are going to make people angry in life. And you think about all the relationships that are challenging in life. And I know as a father, I have made my kids angry. I know my wife has been angry at me. I know my mom and dad have been angry at me. I know just about every person I've been in relationship with has been angry at me. And what God is saying is in those moments... You need to go to that person. You need to love on them, and there has to be healing, and there needs to be reconciliation. And so I just want you to take inventory of your relationships, and maybe there's a person right now that God has put on your mind that you need to go to. Don't put it off. There's a reason these last three verses are challenging us. It's out of our comfort zone. A lot of this is over conflict. But it's entering, this is the last verse before he goes on to the next. Here's what you've heard, and this is what I tell you now. Usually you would say, oh man, Jesus is going to put a nice, big, shiny red bow. It's going to be beautiful. There's going to be hope. He just says, no, there's consequences if you don't reconcile. Don't allow your anger to dominate your life. Because you will have paid the last penny. You'd be thrown in court, and unless you couldn't pay... 
you would die in court because someone either would have to come pay your debt to get you out of prison, but if that debt never got paid, you would live there for the rest of your life in jail. And so what he's saying is you will have to pay the last penny before you will be free again. And I just want to kind of transition right now to if you're here and you're like, man, this sounds great, like Sermon on the Mount, but I'm really not in a relationship with the Lord yet. I'm trying to, you know, seek God. Well, that's the person you need to reconcile with is Jesus. I mean, he knows all about what it means to pay the last penny because he did it for all of us. And he went to the cross because he loved you. He was going to reconcile. He wasn't going to leave it undone. He loved us too much. He's the example of reconciliation. Because when we just, last week, the last two weeks, been looking at what Jesus did on the cross, it's because he loved you so much, he spared you. He's like, look, I'm not going to have you go pay for the penalty that you deserve because of your sin, because of your wrongful doings. I love you too much, he said. I'll take that punishment for you. I will make it possible that you can be reconciled to me because I love you. And if you're here and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, you need to know that God loves you. Yeah, he's being firm here in the Sermon on the Mount, but you've got to know that he made it possible for you to be reconciled to him by going to the cross and giving his life. He conquered your sin, but he rose three days later. And so now his death and resurrection, we can receive this gift of salvation And now we can experience that same. When we experience a physical death here, we are also resurrected. This has eternal consequences to it, being in a relationship with Jesus. You inherit this internal blessing the minute you put your faith and trust in Jesus. And it's not by doing. It's by believing. You can't earn it. I know many people come in here week after week, and they're like, man, I just don't feel like I'm good enough for God. And that is true. Nobody is. But they're like, I need to get cleaned up. I need to get cleaned up before I'm in a relationship with God. And you need to know this. Jesus did not go to the cross when you were at and give his life when you were at your best. He went to the cross when you were at your worst. He paid for all of your wrongful doings, everything, past, present, and future sins. And know that when you surrender your life to Jesus, you become a a new creation, you have a new identity because your identity is how God sees you and now he sees you as a son and daughter. My hope is that you would make that response, that you wouldn't leave here today not knowing about your eternal salvation, but you would be in the arms of the loving father who is embracing his sons and daughters and you will be able to experience that relationship for eternity. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful and thankful for you. And Lord, we just want to honor you with our lives. We want to honor you in our relationships. Thank you for the truth that we see in Matthew chapter 5 about how our anger can cause division, how our anger can really destroy our relationships. And we, God, we know that you have great plans for us in our relationships, that you want to see healing and victory. And you want to see your loving children honoring God and loving one another, Lord. Lord, when we have hearts of anger because 
of another brother and sister in Christ, Lord, we know that your heart breaks for that situation, that you want to bring healing to that situation, Lord. And my hope is that we would allow these verses, your words that you spoke thousands of years ago, Lord, that they would penetrate our hearts and lead to action, that we would not allow anger to dominate our lives. We would not allow anger to keep us from having the loving relationships that you have planned for us, Lord. So be with us in our families, our marriages, our children, Lord, our friendships, our coworkers' relationships, Lord. I just pray that you would do a mighty work, Lord, and that we would be your children who are honoring you, reconciling relationships when there's division, Lord. We love you, we praise you, and we worship you here today, Lord. Amen.